you have your Bibles, let's turn two places. We're going to go uh, Genesis 4 uh, for a minute, and then we're going to spend a bulk of our time in Malachi 1. And so if you say, bag, I only have uh, time to go to one place, go to Malachi 1, all right? You'll, you'll get through it, all right? So uh, last week, we, uh, we dove headfirst into a set of discussions involving what it looks like to be a worship-filled church. And, and we said the only way we can be a worshipful church uh, is if we are worshipful people. Uh, how private worship builds anticipation for public worship. As, as we spend time, as we spend intimate time uh, with God during the week, our meeting together to lift praises and to dive into the Word makes this time that much sweeter. And we also try to narrow our focus in, in what we mean when we use that word worship. Uh, because if we're not careful, we can take a definition, we take a word like that and give it a definition that's so vast that we rarely can find common ground uh, when it comes to it. And so what we've said is that worship is simply our response to what we value most. That our worship is our response to what we value the most, and it's the it's the it's what we value that fuels our actions. It's what we value that consumes us, and where it drives us. We said last week is to an altar uh, that uh, we place all of our energies and our time and our resources and and our hopes and our joys as we seek fulfillment in in whatever we value most at the altar of it. There's a throne, and whatever sits on the throne, that's what we give our worship ultimately to. That, that everybody has an altar, and every altar has a throne. And then we said uh, that in order to uh, find what it is that we value the most, we follow the desperation of our hearts. What are we truly desperate for? And as Jesus says, when we follow our hearts, that's where we find, that's where the treasure lies. And, uh, and so, so this leads us to understanding something important about our motivation, or really teaches us something important about the desperation that we have for God. That, that true and pure worship is our response to the greatness of our God because we see how much He has done to rescue and to redeem us and how much He cares for us. That, that He's gone to great lengths not only to bring us forgiveness, but uh, to bring us life, that he sustains us, that, that, that he keeps us by his will, that he cares for us intimately, and our response to this incredible revelation will be expressed in our view of him. That if we see God as small in our lives, we will respond to him with small worship. But if we see him as large in our lives, we will see him, we will respond to him in large and, and desperate worship. And so, so what we want to do this morning is we want to build on what we talked about last week. And we want to kind of lean into this thought process by examining some of our motivations and really some of our methods when it comes to what we consider worship. Uh, there's a book written by uh, A.W. Tozer, and it's really not a book written by A.W. Tozer. It's a, someone collected some sermons that he taught on the topic of worship. Uh, and in fact, it's called Whatever Happened to Worship by A.W. Tozer. Incredible read. 
Uh, but, but one of the lines in the book uh, that has always caught my attention was, was this, when he says, most of what we call worship is not. Uh, and so what we're going to try to work through today is we're going to find that, that in our response to God, the motivation of our hearts is more important to him than the actual practice of the sacrifices and things like that. And so uh, let's pray and then let's get this going. Father, we come to you and uh, we thank you that you care for us. We thank you that your love for us is, is fierce. We thank you that you have done so much to redeem us and to rescue and to care for us. And I pray this morning as we open your word that your Holy Spirit would speak to us about how we can most properly respond to you. We rely on his help today because uh, left to our own devices, we would remain confused and ignorant. And so we thank you that you've given us a helper here. And we pray that he would speak. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Okay, let's, let's start with an illustration. Okay, so let's, let's suppose uh, out, of, out of my gratitude for you showing up on Coronavirus Sunday, right? Uh, I said, hey, uh, Misty and I would like to take you out tonight for dinner. Okay? Uh, and we're, gonna, we're going all out. Long John Silvers. No. Um, let's, say, let's say that I say, okay, get dressed up. We're going Del Frisco's. Okay? And somebody's like, dang, that guy's got some pastor bucks. No. I, I just have access to my son's money because he saves it. Uh, and so... And so let's say you meet me there and you get there and we're just decked out. We're all looking good. We sit down to order and, and I say, hey, what do you like to eat? And you tell me and the waiter comes and, and I order for myself and then it comes time for you to order. And I say, no, 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 they'll be fine. Okay. And then you sit there and then we chit chat and we talk about the weather and we talk about stuff. And then we're like bread. Hmm, crazy, right? Okay, and then finally the meal comes, but you never ordered, right? Because I told them you'll be fine. And so, so the meal comes and my food is there and I have it and it smells good, right? It's steak and it's a baked potato and it's, what, what else, what do you like? You don't like anything? Gotcha. Okay, everything that I like then. And you're sitting there and you're confused because you're like, hey, I thought he wanted to honor me today. I thought he wanted to show his appreciation today for showing up on such a risky Sunday, right? I thought he wanted to show this kind of care for me. And let's just suppose that I, one second please, and I start eating, right? And I get almost all the way done. And then I say, hey, I would like you to have what is left here as a token of my appreciation for you showing up this morning to church. Okay? And everybody's like, <laughs> okay. So there's, we can agree that there's no honor at the dinner. Right? We can, we can agree that that's not any extent of appreciation. Me giving you the gristle that's left over on my steak and the skin that's left over on my baked potato. Right? So, so here, here's 
where I want us to go, and maybe it's one of our largest dysfunctions when it comes to worship. If, if you would not want to eat off of my plate that is half eaten, then why would we think that God is excited when we give him worship that comes out of the leftovers of our lives? Why would we do that? Like no sane person would make that connection. And now, we're, we're not the first ones that created this issue. In fact, this is one of the things I love about the Bible. I love finding people who mess up in the Bible because it gives me like, oh, okay, I'm not the only one. Okay, so, so not only are we not the first ones that dealt with this, we can go back all the way to Genesis chapter 4 where we see the first offering that's really given to God and we see this dysfunction come out to play. And this has been, again, it's been playing out our whole stories. So, so let's go. Let's go Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. You ready, Emma? There we go. Now Adam... Okay, says this. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife. Okay, uh, that means they high-fived. All right. Uh, and she conceived and bore Cain. All right. You understand what I'm saying, Lane? Okay, here we go. So saying this, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Okay. Now, verse 3 is going to be important. I want you to underline something. If you're so daring to underline in your Bible, in the course of time, okay, Cain brought to the Lord, and underline these parts, an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought, and underline this, of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire for you is for you, but you must rule over it. Okay, now that's we could that's a whole other subject for a whole other day. That 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 God tells Cain, hey, sin wants to rule over you, but you must rule over it. Okay, that takes us to Jesus, whole other conversation. But we're not going to spend a lot of time here, other than to help let us kind of steer where we're going, uh, because here you have a story of not just two brothers, but two worshippers. Cain, a farmer; Abel, a shepherd. And here's here's what I find interesting in verse three. That up until this moment, we don't see an offering really given to God, nor do we see him demanding one. But it says, in the course of time, the boys decide to do something as a response to what God has provided for them. And as we said, worship is our response to what we value most. And, and the altar they end up at appears to be to have God on the throne. At least for one of them. And both will go, but something separates the offering. Right? Both will consider what they are doing as worship, but only one will be considered by God. Now, the, the separation, I think, is in verse number four. That the difference is found there. Abel 
brought a gift out of the, what does it say? Firstborn of his flock. And Cain brought something that is from the fruit of his ground. It's a big difference. Subtle, but big. Because Abel brings something that is first. Cain brings something that is left. You with? So, so the issue has to do with honoring God with our best rather than whatever it is that we can muster, that we must take, uh, that, that we can muster up to give back to Him, that, that God accepts Abel's offering and rejects Cain because God sees into the heart of man and He's not willing to be manipulated. And so, so this has far-reaching applications in our lives as we live as His children. We can be uh, found guilty of similar offerings, though it may not be our sheep or our fruit. Uh, but what about our time? And what about our energy? What about our resources? What about our desires? What about our devotion? That verse 7 reveals that there's a way to worship that leads to sin if we're not careful. Because Cain uh, can make this case, like many of us do, that when, when life seems to disappoint us and we want to blame God for it, have you ever said this in, in a moment of frustration? I don't know what more you want from me. I gave you, and you just fill in the blank. I've been doing, and you fill in the blank. What more do you want? It's only fair that you would do whatever I tell you to do. So, so, so when, when God replies, when we look at God and we say, I gave you an offering, what more do you want? God's answer is always this, okay? It's always this. I want you and I want you to realize how great I am. Always. I, I want you to respond to me in a like manner. Those offerings that you give to me are meaningless and they add nothing to me. Unless your heart is in the right place. Your pure worship, I take great delight in. Your leftovers, I take no delight in. And so, so what we would hope to see after this is that for the remainder of our days, everybody would learn this simple issue from Genesis 4. That we bring God our very best. And I think it's easy today at church to say, well, yeah, God deserves our very best. At least... That sounds like a very Christian-y thing to say. But, apparently that's not the case. In fact, when we go to Malachi, one of my favorite books, some of, some of us are like, there's a book in the Bible named Malachi? Uh, it's the last book in the, Bible, in the Old Testament. Okay, And its, it's placement there is really interesting because after God speaks to the nation of Israel through Malachi, he, go, he goes silent for 400 years. And when the silence is broken, Jesus arrives. Okay, so, but the book of Malachi is really interesting. We, a couple of years ago, I don't know if y'all remember this, we actually went through the book of Malachi, and, and I really think um, maybe in 2021 we might get back there. Uh, we might still be in Hebrews at that time, but, um, but we might go back and revisit it because the conversation that has taken place is incredibly powerful for us. Because ultimately what it is, it's an argument between the people and God. And the people are upset with God, and God looks at them and says, this isn't my fault. It's yours. 
and they will argue back and forth. It's a terribly interesting book. Um, that, and, and much of it, if not all of it, serves as this warning of how to seriously approach a holy God with worship. And so, so let's, let's just go there. Malachi chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 6, and I'm just going to read uh, 6 through 14. And if you say, hey, uh, Brandon, you're reading too fast, it's okay. We'll kind of come back, and I'll, I'll, I'll fill in some blanks for you. So it says this, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. This is God speaking to them. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priest who despise my name, but, but you say, how, do, how have we despised your name? Verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised, when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or, or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. This is a very... Serious warning from God. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, which I find comical, because I don't know how you snort at it, but God's pretty upset about it. You snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. We could spend some time just sitting in that verse, but we won't. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Now there's a lot being said, so let's, let's try to break this into three sections. Okay? And, and now we're talking about regarding leftover worship, because this is the argument. God says, hey, you're bringing me leftover worship, and you're acting like you're bringing me your best. It's, it's pseudo-worship. It's worship, but it's not worship. And so section one, what we find is the origin of leftover worship. And, and Malachi leaves no doubt about what the origin of leftover worship is, that, that it's the failure to see and to feel the greatness of God. It's the failure to see and to feel the greatness of God. That, that you look at me, but you don't see me. You try to appease me, but you're not worshiping me. 
The, the book starts with this declaration, and I love it because uh, we, didn't, we didn't really get to it. It's the first couple of verses where God looks at him and he says, I have loved you. And the people look and they say, how? What a, what a cavalier approach to God, right? That the word of God says, I have loved you. There's times in your life that you know that God has says, I have loved you. And you look at him cavalierly and you say, how? Tell me. Tell me, tell me how you've done this. And, and that's, I think that's the first sign of trouble. If you cannot count the blessings about the love of God in your life, then you're going to have a hard time worshiping him. You will. In fact, he says, he says, I forgave you and I cared for you. I've been patient with you. I provide for you. To top all that off, he tells them, I've chosen you. And then, and then God adds to this by saying that the game that you're playing and acting like you're honoring me with your offerings is not accepted because you're bringing me faulty goods. You're bringing me faulty goods and you know it. But, but, but how does this create in us a tendency to give God something other than our very best? And Malachi would say that giving God your leftovers merely shows how a person is bored with God and is excited about the world. That's what it is. That, that if you can't see the greatness of God, then all the other things in the world will be that much more shiny, that much more attractive. John Piper put it this way. He says, if you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed with the streetlight. If, if you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and the majesty of God, you'll fall in love with the world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. So, so we see from verse 13, uh, what a weariness this is, and, and you snort at me. And, and these are people who are bored with God, who are the church of God. They are bored with God. Their basic attitude toward worship is, what a weariness this is. i got to do this again? i got to show up again? i got to give again? i got to serve again? And when you become so blind that the maker of the galaxies and the ruler of nations and the knower of all mysteries and the lover of your souls becomes boring, then there's only one thing left to love, and it's the world. Because the heart, hear me when I say this, the heart is always restless. It's always restless. It must have it's treasure. And if not on heaven, then it will be on earth. It will be. And so, so, so when it's time to bring sheep from the flock to sacrifice, what do you bring? You bring a, a token prayer be, before you get out of your car or, or you read a fortune cookie-like verse and you say, well, I've spent time in the Word today. Right? Or you, or you pay all your bills and, and you, you say, well, oh, i got a couple coin left over. I guess I can give that to God. But your best, this is the issue with leftover worship, the best you keep it because good sheep sell better. And so, so here it is. The origin of leftover worship is a failure to see and feel 
the greatness of God. So, so God becomes boring, the world becomes exciting, and while there may be a social usefulness in keeping the front of religion, your treasure is resting elsewhere. And this leads us to section two of, of the argument that we're reading in Malachi, that that's the, es- the essence of leftover worship is that religious activity that illustrates how little a person values God. And now we don't want to put it that way, because that's an indictment. That makes us feel uncomfortable, right? But this is, this is what's going on in Malachi. This is what goes on perhaps in our own hearts if we're having a worship issue. Verse 10 says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might can, not kindle a, a... I'm sorry, I'm learning to read. Uh, kindle fire upon my altar in vain. That ultimately their offerings, they weren't costly at all because they were throwaway items. They're throwaway items. Like what kind of an offering is something that you say, eh, I don't really need it anyways. But don't we act at times as if that something we were just going to throw away anyways was some profound act by our, our selfless service? There's this, there's this incredible moment in Second Samuel uh, 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 24, where David uh, is trying to avert a plague, and he's pleading with God, and he needs to build an altar to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And the best place to do this was on the uh, the threshing floor of uh, Arena Reanua. That sounded right. Okay, uh, I look to Lane for confirmation as the biblical expert. Um, and so. And so the guy says, hey, you can have, you can have the, the wood, you can have the animals for free, whatever you need. And David looks at him and he says, I will not offer anything to the Lord that costs me nothing. And it teaches us this valuable lesson that if, he, if you're giving it to the Lord and it costs you nothing, you're not giving it to the Lord because you didn't need it. You didn't need it at all. And so he comes in and he says, it must Costs me something. It must say that he is not uh, that he is my treasure, not the world. And so the essence of, of leftover worship is empty religious activity. It doesn't express worth to God. In fact, it expresses that our treasure is on earth, and that that what we really love is the world. And so we ask this important question in section three as a matter of inference. Uh, looking at what Malachi says is defective, we can learn what section three is. What's the opposite of leftover worship? You thought I was just going to tell you how bad you were today. No, I'm not telling you that. The opposite of leftover worship is a heart where God is treasured above all other human property. Where the heart is a heart where God is treasured among all other human property. We, we can say it like this. That the way this is expressed in our lives is much simpler than we want to argue. That the way this plays out is this, that God gets your best. God gets your best. And you say, well, what about, you know, nope, your best. Nope, nope, your best. There will not be an argument that you can bring to the table where God doesn't deserve or shouldn't have your very best. 
Because again, worship is our response to what we value most. And if we value ourselves the most, then we will give ourselves the most worship. And so true worship is when a heart uh, is a heart where God is treasured above all these other things that that our motivation for serving and and learning and praying and responding to his leadings come not from a fear of what he will do to us if we don't respond properly, but rather a response in joy and humility of what he has and what he continues to do for us. It, it, it aims God-centered passion towards the rest of the world. And he gets my very best. And it's here that, that our joy is actually his joy because we long to reflect his love to this world. We respond to his greatness by declaring his greatness. And so, so worship is, is our response to what we value most. And if the aim of worship is that God gets our best, then we need to ask him to reveal to us if this is in fact true in our lives. Imagine that. If we asked him, hey God, am I giving you my very best? Am I loving you with with the best parts of my heart? Am I caring for you in the most intimate of ways as I respond to the ways that you care for me? So here's a way I'd like to to end today. Um, It's, you can stay. Just, Swan's going to come up. He's going to play. We're going to put a five-minute clock on, okay? In five minutes, Swan's going to pray us out, okay? What I want to do is I want to put some tension on you, okay? You are not going to like it. It's going to be very uncomfortable, okay? If worship is our response to what we value most, and if God deserves our very best, I want us to ask him that question. God, am I giving you my very best? And some of us know very quickly the answer to that question, and you're like, well, that's going to give me five minutes to sit around and do nothing, right? No. But once you start thinking through is what it will take. Why, why are you unwilling to give your very best? What will it take for you to make changes to where you can give him your very best? And I will tell you where that comes down. Some of us try to do life with God in our own strength. And you will always fall short. And if we will do life with God with the strength that Jesus provides, then we find something worth pursuing. Some of us have conflicts that we're unwilling to let go of, and that's keeping us from giving God our very best. Some of us have dreams that we've thought of and life hasn't turned out the way we expected it to and that's keeping us from giving God our very best. Some of us have our securities 
resting in places that can't secure us, no matter how hard they try. And that's keeping us from giving God our very best. So we're going to try something. And I'm not a fan of silence because it exposes me. We're going to try to be in, in our own silence. And I'd like us to ask God that question. Am I giving you my very best? Father, we come to you. And we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you care for us. And what we pray in this moment is that you would help us see and understand more and more about how how for this place to be a worshipful place, we have to be a worship-filled people. But in order for that to take place, Father, we... We have to give you our very best. So, Father, help us see just where we are at today. And if we are giving you our very best, help us respond in ways that it's undeniable how great you are. Father, I thank you for what you're about to speak to some of us.